Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Four Sober Chicks. And as always, I'm joined by Heather, Dana, and Tracy. And today is our first um, story slash interview of our Recovering Out Loud series. We, um, about a month ago, uh, put out a post on social media asking for people who were ready and raising their hands to recover out loud. Um, so Susan Parker is our first um, guest in the Recovering Out Loud series. Susan, we are so happy that you are here. Um, and we feel recovering out loud, that was our premise on making this podcast. Um, we really wanted to focus on that, but we want to give people their voice in this um, arena. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, kind of give us the who you are, where you were, what happened, and kind of where you are now. Okay. Um, well, I actually grew up in Bucks County, same town as Dana. We went to the same high school and, um, I did not have my first drink till I was 21. I was one of those people. Um, and for, I would say all of my twenties and yeah, yeah, a little bit into my thirties, I was just what I would call a, a normal drinker. Um, drinking was always something I did outside of the house. It was like, a, I would go to a bar, I'd go out to dinner, I would go out with friends and I would drink just like a regular person. And, you know, when you're in your twenties, um, I think a lot of people go out and they get drunk and you get too drunk and you throw up the next day. And it's just like partying, regular drinking kind of thing. And, um, I got married in my early thirties and my husband drank at home. And so alcohol moved into the house, which was something I was not used to. And um, pretty quickly after I got married, um, I got pregnant and had my first son. And then two years later, had my second son. And really the focus of my marriage became my kids. And I learned that um, although my husband was a great, great guy, great dad, we were not a good pair. We were not a good match um, for each other. It was not a great um, partnership. My husband, as it turns out, and we later talked about it, um, really wasn't looking for a wife as much as he was looking for kids um, and was not super happy. And at the time I had a job that I was actually with for 27 years. Um, it was a very demanding job. I worked at a uh, fitness center, which doesn't sound very demanding until you know that we were open 17 hours a day and there was the boss and then there was me. And um, the boss used to say, um, oh no, I never take my cell phone 
upstairs with me. It stays on the kitchen counter. When I go to bed, I go to bed and um, I, I don't ever touch my phone. And I'm like, yeah, you know why? Because I have my phone with me 24 hours a day and I'm always on my phone. Um, we had, um, when we started, it was the, it was a brand new business and eventually grew to a staff of over 200, um, 14,000 members, um, revenue of over $8 million a year. It's a huge, huge facility in, uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, um, I was the, as my mother would say, the chief cook and bottle washer. You know, if there was something that needed to happen, uh, Susan was the one that made it happen. Um, anytime someone needed to be hired, I vetted all new employees. If someone needed to be fired, I was that guy too. Um, if there was an emergency with one of the members, somebody, um, and it happens all the time, somebody gets hurt, somebody, you know, breaks a leg, somebody collapses from a heart attack, somebody just anything, you, you know, people step on moving treadmills and smash their faces. And you know, I mean, I can't even, like, I can't write a book, um, <laughs> should write a book. A million things can happen. And I was that girl. Um, that's what I did. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've got two kids, two little kids at home um, and a husband who really, God bless him, not particularly supportive because he didn't really, wasn't really interested in me and what I wanted to do and taking care of me. He was really interested in being a dad. And um, throughout all of this, my habit of having a glass of wine at night and um going to sleep turned into having two glasses of wine at night. And then it turned into having a glass of wine when I got home from work. And then that just continued up until bedtime. And then it turned to where I couldn't have a glass of wine. I couldn't go to sleep without essentially passing out. Oh, I just need another glass of wine so I could fall asleep. And so that was the remainder of my thirties and into my forties. What was once a bad habit was now a really, really bad habit um, became progressively unhappier in my marriage. Um, but you know, as the, as the saying goes, um, my life had not yet become unmanageable. You know, I was still going to work every day. Um, I was still meeting all my obligations. I was probably one of the most active parents in my kid's classroom. Um, went on every field trip, volunteered for everything, was still pulling my weight at work, was still doing all those things. So, Looking back on it, um, I was certainly becoming powerless over alcohol, but my life had not yet become unmanageable. All the balls were still in the air. Everything was happening. Um, when I was 45, um, my husband, who was uh, 13 years older than I am, um, was diagnosed with stage four uh, prostate cancer, terminal prostate cancer, and was given two years to live. Um, and, um, you would think at that point with that kind of diagnosis and, and, um, a 12 year old and a 10 year old at home, you'd say, well, clearly she rallied, right? Like clearly she put the booze down and, um, took care of her husband and, and, and took care of her kids, but she didn't not, not this girl. I wish she did, but she didn't. Um, I just drank more. Um, I was not home 
a lot. I was not a great wife and you can infer from that whatever you'd like. I was not a great wife. Um, was not a good mom. Um, and it got, it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And, um, when my boys were 13 and 15, my husband died and, um, that's right before he died. And interestingly enough, towards the end of his life, the last year of his life was probably, um, ironically, one of the best years of our marriage. Um, because at that point we had nothing left to lose. You know, we were just really, really honest and open with each other. And that's when I, you know, we had that conversation where I said, you know, marriages are supposed to be two people and the kids are supposed to add to that. And he was like, I mean, we stood right here in the kitchen and he was like, no, no, marriages are for kids. And I'm like, no, no. Like he really, truly up to the day he died, didn't really understand that. Um, in his world, you got married to have kids and, and that's what it was. And I don't know if that was his, his religious background and, and he'd been married before and his wife didn't want kids. So by the time he met me and I was 30 and he was 43, he really, really wanted to have kids. And so that was his main goal. So, you know, we butted heads. I would want to punish the kids and I would, you know, um, you can't do that. You can't this. And of course they would run to daddy and daddy would say, well, you don't have to listen to mommy. And you can imagine if any of you have kids where that, where that takes you and how that invalidated me as a mother, as a woman, as an authority figure. And I would go to work and people would listen to me. And it was a whole thing spilled milk at this point. But, um, um, so at least when he was alive, I had someone kind of keeping me in check. I had sort of at least someone who was at home waiting for me and someone who would say, where the hell were you and what the hell's going on and what are you doing? And when he died, you know, the, the reins came off and there was nobody to keep me in check. Um, just these two boys who, who needed me and I was not there. Um, and for two and a half years after my husband died, I drank like there was no tomorrow. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, a classic, uh, wino you know I'm a Chardonnay girl and uh like a really classy girl I drank wine out of a box because right like it's cheaper and I carry my two boxes of wine out of the liquor store and uh when I leave my house I walk out through the kitchen um past the refrigerator out the garage door to my car and um, every morning when I would leave the house, I would open the refrigerator door, pick up the box of wine and shake it so I could see if there was enough wine in there, if I had to stop at the liquor store on my way home. And uh, spoiler alert, there was never enough wine in there. I always had to stop on the way home. Um, and there's three liquor stores like in my flight path that I could go to. And of course I would alternate liquor stores because I wouldn't want the people at the liquor stores to think that I was an alcoholic, the bright red face and the constantly sweaty. I mean, the pictures are just horrific. I look at the pictures. Like this is just my normal rosy glow. It was a bright red. This is terrible. I look back and I'm like, oh God, it was terrible. Um, and slowly over those two and a half years, um, my job performance is slipping. My parental performance is definitely slipping. Um, at the time I smoked cigarettes and I would go sit on the back deck from the time I walked in the door, um, until the time I made it to my bed, if I made it to my bed, 
um, smoking cigarettes and and uh, and drinking. Um, I would come inside and I would go to the fridge and fill up my my cup of wine, and I'd go back outside. And no sooner would I go back outside and sit down and light a cigarette. Then the boys would come downstairs and you can see them and they'd come right downstairs and go into the kitchen and get something to eat. And I would be so pissed because it's like, as soon as I would go outside, they'd come downstairs. They would never come downstairs when I was inside. And I'd be like, what the hell is that? Like, why are they doing that? And um, when I asked them one time, my oldest, who was maybe 16 at the time, said, can I be honest? And I said, sure. And he said, we never know what we're going to get when we talk to you. And I, you know, poo-pooed that and dismissed it and kept drinking. And um, then the pandemic came, which was um, very expensive because you couldn't buy wine at the liquor stores here in Pennsylvania. And I had to go to convenience stores, which meant I could only buy four bottles of wine at a time. And they were small bottles. Like if I had to buy a bottle, I would get the big bottle, but I could only buy the small bottles and I could only buy four at a time, take them out to my car and come back. And that was super embarrassing. Um, and my boss insisted we keep the building open. Health clubs were not considered essential, but he made a few of us continue to come in. Um, and there was some stuff I didn't approve of at work. And I, for the sake of, respect from him. I, I won't go into that, but there were some things I didn't approve of. And I kept doing that. And um, one day when we were there, just a few of us at work, and we were friendly at my work to begin with, but when we were all together, like alone in this big, you know, 120,000 square built square foot building, um, you get really close. There's only like four of you working alone in a little pod. And I had a friend there who was eating um, like a stir fry with rice and he's eating it and he's eating it and he's not eating it on a fork first of all who eats rice on a fork not a girl whose hand shakes like crazy right and um it looked really delicious and I said oh can I have a bite of that and he said sure and he handed me the bowl and I said no give me a bite and I held it up in my mouth and he's like no you can just take and I said no never mind thanks because there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to take a fork full of rice and bring that rice to my mouth because my hands, I mean, there was just no way. And um, thank God we were closed because I was to the point where there's no way that I could sign an official document, that I could take notes in a meeting, that I could do anything because my hand would not stop shaking. And I had gotten to the point where um I would tell you, I never drank before work, but um, drinking till I passed out at night only took me so far. It only took me till about three o'clock in the morning when I would wake up again. And then I'd pour a nice big healthy glass of wine and I'd go sit outside on the deck and I'd smoke a couple of cigarettes and drink that big healthy glass of wine and go back to sleep around four or 4.30. And I'd sleep till 6.30. I never drank again for work but then I'd get up at seven or go to work at seven or seven thirty, and that would last me through but you know by two or three o'clock it's time to go home now because I can't I can't make it any longer and um because I was in charge of of um getting the health care together for for work every year I had the contact at the health insurance company 
and I had emailed her and said, Hey, what are the, um, what are the rehabs in the local area that are covered by our health insurance? And she sent me the, the two names of the rehabs. So I had those in my back pocket. And, um, one day it was, it was early afternoon. I was coming home from work. I guess we had reopened by then three month quarantine or closure had, had ended. And it was just after that, um, end of June, I guess. And, um, I was coming home from work and I had this weird thing when I would drive the car where, um, I would grip the steering wheel with a death grip and I would be sweating and just like I was going to die. And I was afraid that I was just going to jerk the car off into traffic. And I didn't want to, my head didn't want to, but I was afraid I was just going to spasm and, and I was just going to crash the car and I, I couldn't stop it. I just was afraid. And I was sitting on the off ramp to come to my house. And it's only like a mile on the highway to get to my house. And I said, I can't, this is ridiculous. I just can't. So I got home and my kids weren't home and I poured a big old fat glass of wine and went out on the back deck and lit a cigarette and I called the rehabs. And the one place is real local. And they said, great, we'll take you. We have a new facility and it's in Connecticut. And I'm in Pennsylvania. And if you don't know, Connecticut's many hours away. And I said, no, no, I don't want to go to Connecticut. I want to go to the one that's 20 minutes away. And they said, we don't have openings there, or we do have openings there, but we want to send you to our facility in Connecticut. And I have kids, they're, they're, they're 15 and 18, that I'm going to be leaving alone. And I said, mm -mm. local, no, no, Connecticut. And I said, no, no, thank you so much. And I hung up the phone and I called the other place. And um, they were very, very nice. And they said, yes, now, this place wasn't 20 minutes away. It was 30 minutes away, next county over. But okay, I can do that. And so I went back and forth with those people for a while. And they said, you can come today. And I said, I can't come today, which you know now I know is like, oh, I'm so busy, right? But at the time I didn't know. But I did have to get things squared away at work and figure out who was going to keep an eye on my kids and all that good stuff. And so I continued to drink for the rest of the day. And in the dark, my kids came home, were already home. And I called them out on the porch in the dark, I remember. And I said, I need to talk to you. And they said, well, and I said, I'm gonna, um, I have to get some stuff together for you guys um, and square some things away at work. I said, but I'm gonna go away um, for a few weeks. I need to go and get help stopping drinking. And um, my oldest son, I said, do you guys have any questions about that? And my oldest son said, can you go tomorrow? And I was like, hey, no. So um, I very quickly got together a list of phone numbers of, you know, the vet and the heating and cooling place and the, the family doctor and the, you know, everybody that you, there's a phone, the eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper with everybody's possible phone number on it. And I called, um, my husband's sister who lives locally and I talked to um, the few neighbors on the street that we're close with and um, everybody knew where I was going and what I was doing and then um, I talked to my boss and I said I'm going and I know in his head he's thinking 
girl, we were just closed for three months. Could you not have done this while we were closed for three months? We're finally open and now you're leaving for a month. But that's what I was doing. Um, and I don't know if you know anything about, about gyms, about health clubs, but they are, they tend to be um, rumor mills a little bit. And if you've ever seen um, like the Real Housewives of Orange County or the Real Housewives of whatever, um, that's what kind of what we call our gym because, you know, it's a big, and not that I'm anybody particularly special, but I've been a fixture. I've been, I was there for 26 years at that point. Everybody knew who I was. I was an institution, like little kids that I had are now adults with their own kids. Like I'm like a grandmother to these people. Right. And, um, there's a staff of 200 and there's 14,000 members and everybody knows me. And um, as much as I'd like to think that nobody knows I drink a lot, everybody knows I drink a lot. So if they have the information that I drink a lot and they have the information that I just disappear for a month, they're going to put the two together and they're going to make up the stuff in the middle. And, um, you know, it's very quickly going to go from Susan drinks a lot to Susan disappears to um, you know, Susan's doing heroin behind the grocery store and, and doing tricks to afford, like, you know, whatever it's going to be, that's what the story is going to be in the middle. And um, I didn't want that to happen. So I wrote an email <clears throat> to, um, to my uh, 10 or 12 direct reports, which is all the managers. And um explained everything. And I said, look, for a very long time, I've taken care of everybody else. In the meantime, um, my husband died. My mother died. My, um, my mother had a long battle with dementia. Um, my husband had cancer. My, my father-in-law was very ill for a long time. He died. Um, my brother died after that, after I got sober, but that's a whole other thing. So anyway, I spent a very long time taking care of a lot of people. And now it's time to take care of myself. And um, I said, you know, while I'm not um, proud of this, I'm also not embarrassed by it. This is something that I need to do and I'm going to do it. And I said, and if anybody asks where I am, you're more than welcome to share this information with them. You can forward this email to whomever you want, but I'm going. And that was really like the start of my um, recovering out loud, you know, like I'm doing this. This is what's happening. And I'm going. And um, I went. And uh, when I came back, some people knew where I was. Some people didn't. And if people didn't, they said, gosh, I haven't seen you. Where were you? And I'm like, I was in rehab. And that was it. And I go to AA meetings every day. Um, I was at one seven o'clock this morning. That's when I texted you. Sorry. I texted you in the middle of a meeting. It's a true story. Um, and uh Oftentimes I'll go to two in a day, like I want to hit every Monday night. So I'll be there tonight at eight o'clock. And um, the first day I was home, I went and got a mani-pedi. I did not go to a meeting, I will confess, but um, pretty much every single day. And July 9th will be three years since I've had a drink. And I go to, um, thank you. Um, it's 1,005 days. I will tell you, that's how long it's been. I was, I always do a countdown because <laughs> every time they say like how many days people have, I used to pull it up on my phone in meetings and say to my friends, this is how long you've had. And uh, last week was a thousand days. So I know it's a thousand and five days today, um, which is just funny, but that's what it is. Um, and I say, to, I'll be talking to people. I'm like, oh, I went to a meeting or 
um, I was at AA or, you know, I, I meet somebody and this, my son plays, excuse me, my son plays basketball and, um, you know, we'll be sitting in the, in the, in the stands with his, uh, with my friends, you know, basketball parents. And I'll say something about, oh, I was at AA the other day. And my one friend's like, and like, she looks around to see if anyone can hear. And I'm like, first of all, you're not the one in AA. And second of all, I don't care if people know I'm in AA. Um, and this is, this is kind of my go-to that I always say is I have done a lot of things in my life that I'm ashamed of and getting sober is not one of them. Um, there's a lot that I, you know, I told you a little bit of the story, but there's a lot of things I've done that I'm not proud of. Um, and, and this is the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, I have what I refer to as, um, motherhood part two. Um, I get to be a mom to my kids that I never got to be, or I didn't get to be for a very long time. Um, I was always kind of on the periphery of that which is um, sort of my my jam anyway. Like some people get super, super involved in their kids' lives. And, you know, they know every one of their kids' friends and their kids' girlfriends, and they are like up in their kids' grill all the time. I, that's not my style to begin with, um, but it really, really wasn't my style. Um, and, you know, when I, my son's... Uh, senior year, junior and senior year of basketball, I would go to every single game, away games, home games. And my son used to say, mom, you don't have to come. And I'm like, yes, I do. This is one of the reasons I got sober so I can go to all your games. And after two years of sitting on bleachers, he's finally done his senior year of basketball. I'm like, thank God, no more wooden bleachers to sit on, you know, but I didn't care. I loved every single second of it. Um, he tells me he's not going to prom. And I'm like, oh, but you are, you have to go to prom. I said, you can't go to senior week if you don't go to prom. That was my, my rule. You probably won't listen, but that's okay. But, you know, I get to do all these things that I didn't get to do before. Um, my, as I said, my mom passed away. My dad is now, um, he'll be on, he's almost 88 and he's crotchety old man and, and all those things. And, and, um, I get to be there for him as much as he drives me insane. Once a week I go to his house and, you know, it's tis the season. So I'll go up and mow his lawn once a week and I go see him and check on him and, and do all that good stuff that I, I wouldn't be able to do if I was drinking. Um, I did leave my job after about a year. Um, not for 27 years is a long time to do the same thing, but it's also was very difficult without the aid of alcohol to be that, um, to be that guy, to be that guy on call 27 or 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, to take that um, basically shit from everybody all the time, to be that punching bag. Um, it was when I got back, you know, we were still, it was still a whole nother year of, of post pandemic of not knowing with the mask thing and wearing the mask and not wearing the mask and wiping things down and not wiping things down. I don't want to wear a mask. And, you know, that was, we're starting to forget, but that was a pretty rough time um, for, for still a little bit longer. And, and um, a lot of my job was very customer facing. One of the things we did was get rid of um, some unnecessary staff because we didn't have people come back. I say unnecessary. Um, 
they were very necessary pre-pandemic and now they're back again. But at the time, we just couldn't afford people. Managers did stuff that that were frontline stuff. And um, I was getting screamed at a lot, a lot, a lot. And um, rules were changing. They were coming down from, from my boss and rules were changing. And I was trying to convey them to the staff and the staff was yelling at me and the members were still yelling at me and the boss was, you know, it was a lot. And, um, and um, he was kind of done with me and I was kind of done with him and we both wanted the best for each other, but it was like, you know, it, it had worked, it had done its time. And, um, I still, I was just there this morning, you know, we, we, I love him. He loves me. Uh, you know, I, it's great. I spoke at his daughter's wedding, like we're, we're good, but it was time for me to go. Um, and, uh, I went back to school. I picked a totally different, you know, when I went to college the first time, uh, my degree is in education and, um, elementary education. And I got to use a lot of that working at the health club. I started all their children's programs, their summer camps, all of the whole children's programs there. I started all of those and got to use that education. And now um, I go to um, a technical college, believe it or not, and I'm studying water and environmental technology, which is just like out of the blue. Um, I knew I wanted to do something local and we have an excellent technical college here in central PA. And um, I wanted a two year or something. The um, only other option would be something in the health sciences. And in the, uh, in light of the pandemic, I did not want to do anything in the health sciences. I was like, no, thank you. Um, I'm good on that. And, um, and so I'll graduate on May 20th with an associate's degree in water and environmental technology. and no idea what I'm going to do yet, but um, I just kind of put it in the hands of my higher power and apply for jobs and and see what happens. And that's kind of that's that's my whole story or most of it. So, thanks. Oh, Susan, um, it's for me personally. Um, your story has a lot of commonality with my, my mother's. Um, but she never got past the hump of I need I need help. Um so I had that mom that I wasn't going over to our house after school with my friends because I knew that she'd be passed out on the couch. She went to work at 6 a.m. already drunk. Um, I mean, her DUIs were from morning time <laughs> um you know so the commonality with that like I give you so much kudos for realizing kind of hindsight's 2020 right where you're like nope I need to be this mom I need to do all these things but in those moments and when you're in the throes of work and stress it is so common that I, I think a lot of people don't associate the two, but that's when we start drowning ourselves in alcohol. That's not the wake up call that we're like, Hey, this is actually not going very well. I don't think alcohol is going to be promoting me to do any better at work, you know, the whole nine. So like actually acknowledging that and raising your hand saying, I, I need to get help. I think there's so many people out there. Either they never make that call or if they do, it's almost too late. 
Um, so kudos to you. I, I mean, my hat is off to you. You know what? Um, asking for help um, is huge. And it's so, it was so difficult for me to do because I was the helper. I was the guy. I was the go-to guy at work. I was the go-to guy at home. Um, growing up, um, my one sister was a lot older than me and, and had a different relationship with my parents and my grandparents. And so she was kind of exempt from anything. Um, the next sister in line, the one that's closest to me, she was always sort of, she's an artist and she was always sort of, um, well, that's just Patty. That's just Patty. Susan, you know better. Susan, you can do better than that. Susan, you, you're, you're, we can count on you, Susan, you know. And then I had a younger brother who certainly couldn't be asked to do anything because after three girls, we had the boy and John, certainly we wouldn't dare ask John to do anything. So it was always Susan, 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 Susan. And we had, a that was a discussion um, a couple of weeks ago in, at my regular AA meeting, we talked about um, control and somebody brought up the term bulldozer and that's the thing is I get accused of being the bulldozer and I try so I try and hold back on that because I don't want to always have to be the one but conveniently when you, you need a bulldozer who do you look to so I have a hard time balancing that but yes learning to ask for help and um, realizing that I don't always have to be the one with all the answers um was a huge, because when my husband died, I was like, oh my God, I have to know how to do everything. And I didn't. And so I was terrified. And so I just, you know, drank more and discovering that like, there's people out there who can do that. Like there's, we have people for that. Like people whose whole job it is to manage your money. There's people whose whole job it is to like replace your hot water heater. Who knew? Like, there's people for that. Go ask them. Who knew? That was I love a, it. a huge revelation for me. Well, Susan, you're definitely a caretaker. I was a caretaker as well for my mother. Um, I love your story. I could totally relate. For me, I used alcohol to cope. And I, 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 heard, I didn't hear that word. You didn't say cope. But for me, it sounded like, you know, you steadily started using it at you know, just to cope with a demanding job, with a vacant husband, with a life that, you know, that you wanted, you wanted, but maybe you weren't being fulfilled. So what you're doing is you're filling it and that sadness, that loneliness, that grief with alcohol. And that's exactly what I did. And to see, hear your story, and then to hear that, you know, it was when you started, when you decided to put yourself first, that's when you were making that change. And, and that's, that's the part of recovery, right? That's the part of that, that transition when we, when from that, we know that we're serious, not serious about this, but like, this is the time. Cause how many, I know I've hugged the porcelain God, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to drink it again. But there was a difference the last time I drank that last hangover, it was different. And I had to make changes and I had to do it. I, right. So no longer it was nobody else's job or responsibility to, you know, to push me there or, or ask me to not drink anymore and, and things like that. What you said was, you said a lot, you've done a lot. Uh, there's been a lot that I have done that I'm not proud of, ashamed of, and becoming sober is not one of them. 
That is such a powerful, amazing statement, and I love it. And that's something that um, I want to just ask you a little bit more about because I love being sober as well. I think my life is just so much better. I'm, I'm, I'm capable, right? You mentioned before you weren't a good wife, you weren't a good mother. That was, that was me when I was drinking. I was not at my full capacity, and just seeing and hearing you later, you know, it, it sounds so in your sobriety, um, you know. Tell me a little bit more about like your relationship with your older son and how that looks now um, or, you know, the relationship with your father, with yourself, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. Um, my older son's great. He, um, he graduated from high school um, when I was still drinking. He graduated during, during the pandemic, um, right at the tail end of my drinking and um I'll tell you a quick story. They they um, graduated in their cars. Well, you know, parents drove and you went through the, by the school and um, the superintendent was handing out the, you know, little folders with your diploma in them. And I was driving the car. So the senior is in the passenger seat and the parents driving and the superintendent's on the passenger side handing out the thing. And I ran over the superintendent's foot. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Um. He is, he is, um, my younger son just kind of, I don't know, we don't, we haven't talked about it too much. I mean, really formally, um, my older son talks about it all the time. When, when a landmark comes, um, he always, like when I get, you know, when I get three months or six months or nine months or a year or two years, he always um, talks about it. I um, had it my like my little day counter of of how many days and so I sent him a picture of the 999 days and well when I got 900 days he's like oh almost a thousand I'm like dude could you be happy for the 900 days for one second and then I said in 999 days and um we laughed about that and then the next day out of the blue I got a text from him that said happy 1000 days mom I'm so proud of you I love you so much so yes. he's yeah yeah that's great that is wonderful and as far as um taking care of myself Basically anything that um, I'm really, the thing I'm most careful about is anything that, um, that suck, I don't know how to put the words, but like anything that sucks my energy, my, like that ruins my juju, I just don't do it anymore. And that includes people who, who, and arguments and situations that I can put myself into where somebody's just not nice or somebody's just negative or whatever, um, I just walk away from and say, okay, thank you very much. And I walk away. Whereas the old Susan would scream and yell and can try and convince you, you know, there's political people that I don't care for. And, um, you know, I want to convince you a thousand times why this person sucks and why you should be against this person or why this policy is wrong. And I would scream at you till I was purple and sweating and fight with you. And now I just go, okay. And I quietly walk away and donate to the causes that I think are important. And I, I just don't, I just can't because it ruins my peace. And I'm at home with my mouthpiece and I sleeping like this and clenching my jaw and, and banging my head against the wall. And you're off doing your thing. I mean, you know, the, the one, the one thing, resentments is like is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die like I'm losing my mind and you're off 
doing your thing. And I just don't do that to myself anymore. And when I do catch myself doing it, I catch myself anymore. And I'm like, stop, stop. No, 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 don't do that. So that's my biggest amount of self-care that I give myself is not letting myself get insane over stuff like that. That's awesome. So the part of your story that I read, I got actually really emotional because, you know, I had to do, I was also a caregiver taking care of my children. Um, we were living in China. My husband was working two hours away, you know, so we, I was the, the most responsible parent in the house all the time and came to a point where I really knew I needed to go to treatment. And if I wasn't sure, then God gave me seven different examples or my higher power gave me seven different examples to really drive it in. Cause I'm one of those ones that's like, no, I can definitely do this. So I also had to make the plan to leave my kids um, and all my responsibilities and all of those things. And as a caregiver who has control issues, that is, I think, one of the hardest things to do because we tell ourselves, you know, I, I was reflecting on your story and how many women we've listened to and, and spoken with and how many of my clients are high functioning, super successful, do all high achievers, overachievers as women. And, you know, this is one of the reasons we recover out loud because that model of, you know, the guy with the bottle and the bag, and that doesn't fit the general population, but it really doesn't fit females. We, you will not suspect because most of us are so high functioning and hide it so, so well and have this house of cards that people don't see it coming. So I love the fact that you put the email out and, and honored yourself and really honored what you were doing to take care of yourself. I really um, appreciate the part of your story where you had to sit down and face the hardest truths of not being the mom or wife that you had wanted to be. But I also celebrate with you too, that you get to be a different version of yourself. And with all of this hindsight that we get to learn, but some of those parts are the hardest parts, right? So as you've gone through your journey, what do you do with the guilt and shame? There's a line in AA that says, we shall not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And um, that's tough because I still have a lot of that. I mean, it's not even been three years and I, and um, sometimes it sits like a big sour lead ball in my tummy and I just live with it. But what I'm learning to do with it is to um, share it with others and um, help them live with it, help them grow from it. Because if I don't learn from it and I don't help other women learn from it, then it was all for naught. And I think that's what it means when it says, um, nor wish to shut, shut the door on it is that it happened. There's nothing I can do about it. And I could spend the rest of my life curled up in a ball with my sucking my thumb with a glass of Chardonnay in my hand, or I can suck it up and say, look to the next girl, look, this is what happened. This is what happened to me. And I'm okay now. And I'm, 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 you know, recovering out loud and I'm going to go on with my life and be the best person I can be from this point forward, because my other choice 
is the fetal position. And I'm not going to do that. And if I can do that, then you can do that. And you can do that. And you can do that. And that's really the only choice we have. Um, I, I don't love it. I wish I never did a lot of the things I never did. I mean, I did, but what other choice do you have? Yeah, we can't change that. We can only change what we're doing next, how we're reacting, how we're going to deal with the situation. And with all that, like you mentioned, those touch points where you one contributes to the next, that's how we yeah. hopefully end the stigma. I'm going to hand it over to Dana before we. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great conversation, Susan, and I'm so thankful that you reached out and wanted to be on the show and and um the podcast is it show show right show <laughs> um it, and your story it starts out like so many other people right it starts out with that one glass or the two glass you know and and you don't realize how it progresses until you're at a point where you're like, wait a minute, what do I do with this? What am I doing to myself? What am I doing to the relationships I have in, in you know, my life? And I'm just so thankful um, to have your story on here and out, you know, because I think your story will speak to a lot of people, um, you know, especially with the pandemic. I There's so many people I hear about that whole running into a liquor store and having to go back and forth because you were only allowed to buy so much, right? Um, and, you know, for you to take those steps, like Tracy was saying, Heather, I, I'm, it's amazing that you are able to just recover out loud and there is no shame, there is no stigma for you to say, I am sober. I am in recovery and I'm living my best life. And I think it's those stories that speak to the people that are struggling the most with trying to figure out what their next steps are in their sobriety. So um, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on here and sharing it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I I had a lot of people come up to me and say, well, I knew you drank, but I didn't know that you drank that yeah. much. I didn't know yeah. it was that big of a deal. And um I've had a couple of people come up to me and say, I'm, I might need to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you a little bit more. And um, and where did you go? And, and that kind of thing. And that's that's all I can do is, is um, and I'm not perfect. God knows I'm not perfect. And I didn't drink today. And I, um, but you know, it's not quite noon. So it's all we have is is this minute, this day. And um, and um, I just hope that, that um you know, today's a gift and that's, that's what I'm, I'm hoping to help other people with. So thank you ladies so Just, much for having me. I can't even tell you. Thank you so much. You're welcome to really fast. Dana, I, I just want to get your two bits because, you know, Susan mentioned a good, big point. I know you're big in the work and, you know, work life. How do you feel or, or what is your experience with how much pressure was put on her how much responsibility how much accountability that the employer didn't take you know on on a certain situation and I'm not trying to speak for your employer Susan I don't mean but really I mean you know you say you work 24 7 that's gonna have some effect why I mean you know what are your thoughts on that Dana it it does right I mean when you're put in that situation um it, it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure. I didn't have the the dealings that Susan did with, with my job. I had the same pressure, the same 24-7 phone hooked to the hip 
um, kind of deal where, you know, you're always on call. Um, the alcohol absolutely helps get through that a little bit easier, right? Um, but like her, I don't know exactly your situation, Susan, with the people that knew at work. Nobody at my work knew I drank the way I drank. They had no idea. So my employer didn't know what what was going on with me or and I didn't I didn't go to rehab. So I didn't reach out to anybody for the help. Um, you know, that's that's why I started the program at work to be able to be that person, to be that conduit for people to get that help, um, to, to get rid of that stigma. So they have somebody that they can reach out to, you know, um, confidentially. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I had, I played my own part in that, you know, I mean, there was a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I, I did my own part by not pushing back when I should have. And, and um, to a certain extent, I liked it because as I said, if no one was listening to me at home, people were listening to me at work. So <laughs> I, I thrived on that a little bit. And I also, um, when I was at work, I wasn't drinking. So I would stay longer. I would do more because it was a place that I knew I wasn't going to drink because I knew the second I walked in my door, I, before I even took off my coat, I had to walk past the refrigerator on the way in too. And that was the first thing I did on the way in the door. I even take it off my coat was open the fridge and get out that box of wine. So it was also a safe space for me to be at work. So I, I had my own part to play in that as well. But yes, 24 hours a day is a, is a lot. So there's, you know, a little bit of both going on there, but. Way, way well, from Susan, looking out there, Trace. Thanks. Well, Susan, thank you so much. And like I said, with you being our first Recovering Out Loud, I am, I mean, you're setting the stage for how many more women, but they, I mean, the stories, like that is what is going to touch people. That is what people relate to. That is where people maybe start to lean into that and question, you know, oh, that's actually really similar. I do the same thing. I wonder if I have a problem. I should look into that. You know, so I thank you so much for setting this up um, the way that you have, because I think it's going to be absolutely great. A reminder to everyone, you guys can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, we will see you guys then. Thank you. Bye, Susan. Thank you so much. Bye, Susan. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at 4SoberChicks. That's number 4SoberChicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.